Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A warm welcome to everybody joining us this week. Uh, we have another great discussion ahead. Unfortunately, uh, Elliot Turner couldn't be here this week, but uh, we look forward to having him with us again next week. I'm going to start with uh, Chris Bloomstrand today, and uh, then we'll go to Phil Ordway after that. So, Chris, no further ado, I'm going to go to you. Yeah, good, John. Uh, Elliot, miss you this week. We'll look forward to seeing you back. You had a little thing going on, and um, uh, miss you being on the pod. John, glad you're here. We had a little time snafu, and I actually thought when I was sitting there for the few minutes delay that maybe you guys over there had looked into who your president was, and I think Rob, I know, I know Rob <laughs> and I was there, and maybe Guy Spear, maybe with the... I did look the, it up, actually. I can tell you now. Not that it matters, but yeah. Well, I thought, you know, on the back of that, figuring that out and then getting your various new iterations of COVID lockdown, I thought maybe the three of you guys might be out protesting and even doing some looting. So turns out that's not the case. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you're here. No, so kidding aside, I, uh, I wanted to circle back. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked about some of the perspective changes to the tax code and really drilled in on, on how corporations would be affected. And then that conversation, we took the conversation off on a tangent and talked about Disney. I had, in thinking about that, that conversation, had just started drafting a letter to uh, Bob Chappick, who's the new CEO. Disney, uh, if you guys recall, had cut their dividend for the first half of the year, uh, which I think was the prudent course of action for the pandemic. Danny Loeb at Third Point had sent Disney a letter uh, suggesting you know, perhaps indefinitely suspending the dividend and deploying that capital differential, which runs a little more than $3 billion on an annualized basis, back into building out content for Disney Plus. And, you know, I, I reacted differently to that and wound up finishing the letter after we recorded the podcast two weeks ago, sending my version of the letter off to Bob, wound up then having a conversation with the Disney folks and you know, it sounds like they're 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 going to be contemplating at the board level what to do with all levers of capital allocation. And you know, I was able to chime in my two cents. I don't expect Disney to take Semper Augustus's two cents or Third Point's two cents, but they're thinking about it. And um, so, so I thought, you know, here, here we are with these potential tax code changes, uh, and I thought a conversation on dividend policy uh, might might be a fun one. So on, on, on the tax code changes at the household level, I mean, there's some very expensive proposals on the table for those that have high levels of income in the country. You know, we're talking about, about uncapping the 12.4% tax on Social Security. If you guys remember, under Clinton, they uncapped the uh, Medicare piece the 1.45 on either side, so 2.9% on each side. Well, right now, Social Security taxes are, are capped at up to something like 130 or 
there's proposal to uncap those on all incomes north of $400,000. So on that incremental amount of income, that's an additional 12.4% tax, which is really onerous. Under the TC, uh, under TCJA, the top tax rate, which was moved down to 30, 37% from 39.6, starting in 2026, that was going to go away. You were going to go back to 39.6. The, the current um, Democrat proposal is to immediately take that marginal rate back, back to 39.6%. There are some onerous components that really impact long-term shareholders and wealthy families. There's a proposal to eliminate the, the, the basis step up, the cost basis step up at death and in concert to reduce the estate tax exemption from $11.2 million per individual, double that for household or for husband and wife uh, to, to cut those in half. Well, that, that, that cutting in half was already going to take place under TCGA. You know, they, they, they couldn't score that thing permanently because the overall cost over a 10-year period would have been too high. So they only did it for a short period of time, hoping they could eventually make it permanent. Anyhow, more, more to the subject at hand, there's also a proposal to change the taxes on long-term capital gains and on qualified dividends. Presently, under TCGA, they lowered the rates to 20%, and then there's a 3.8% Obamacare tax on top of that. So the combined rate at the highest marginal rate for dividends and, and, and gains is 23.8%. Proposal in place on income over a million dollars to increase the rate to 39.6%, which is a near doubling. And if they don't eliminate the Obama tax, keeping the 38 that takes the marginal rate on dividends to 43.4%. And so with that, you know, you think about the capital levers that you can push and pull. You, know, you can repurchase shares, you can, you can increase or pay down debt, you can make acquisitions, you can pay yourselves more money, you can increase R&D and CapEx. You know, there, you know, there are only so many levers you can pull. And you know, specific to dividends, because that was really the subject at hand with, with the folks at Disney, you know, here they are at a point in time. And my, my point to them was, look, you know, I don't want to tell you guys, I don't think anybody should tell you what to do. You've got a brilliant history over the decades of, of, of you know, very intelligent allocation of capital. You've invested at high returns, what you've done with content and across all the assets of the business are beautiful. The acquisitions that you've made are terrific. Most recently, the 21st century uh, deal, which, you know, was a, a very large deal that Disney made. So, you know, you know, as I think about as I think about dividend policy specifically, you know, I think too many companies set a dividend as a percentage of profits, and they either hold it at that rate, or everybody wants to increase their dividends over time and become a quote unquote dividend aristocrat. So the dividend payout rate, you know, invariably is either constant or it winds up moving up. And I'm not sure that's such a great use of capital, especially if you're you know a business with Profits that fluctuate and move around. Certainly, if you're a cyclical business or you're in a cyclical industry, uh, you go through rough patches like we're in now with the COVID. You know, I've got a couple of companies in the portfolio, Exxon Mobil and Olin, who have maintained their their dividend payouts. You know, Exxon just yesterday maintained the dividend payout, and I kind of expected at some point here they would cut it because they're not earning the dividend. They're not even making money. You know, ditto for Olin. Uh, and you know, as, a, as an aristocrat, having paid a dividend back the 1930s, there's a sense when you become a top exec that you want to maintain that policy. But 
again, I'm not sure that's the best use of capital. So, you know, to me, when a board and a management is setting dividend policy, you really have to think about how much profit is really needed just to stand still in the business. And that would be, you know, effectively a way to think about maintenance CapEx. And from there, you think about all those various levers that I just mentioned, you know, the things you can do with capital. And so here we are in a period for the last three or four years where we've had, you know, a fairly low by historical standards tax on capital gains and dividends. And, you know, I think the, I think the proper way to think about, um, you know, re, kind of a net return is through the eyes of a taxable investor and not a, and not a tax-free investor. So, you know, I think about my own portfolio with, you know, aggregate companies, and I write about this in my letter every year, but, you know, my businesses earn, you know, 13, let's say, on, on 13 on equity. Uh, they trade at 160% of book value. So, you know, I've got, you know, a portfolio trading at 12 to earnings and 8.5% if you adjust for the premium to book for the ROE, 8.5% adjusted ROE, which turns out is also uh, the earnings yield. You just play around with the earnings to price and the earnings to book value, which is the ROE divided by the price to book, and you get the same number. And so, you know, when you're when you're thinking about buying back shares, you know, I would start with with an earnings yield on normalized earnings, not on either cyclically depressed or artificially or or peak type earnings, but on a normalized earnings basis. You know, I look at the amount of leverage that it takes to get to the ROE, and you know, in the case of our of our companies, they're they're modestly levered. On a net debt to equity basis, there's very little debt. You know, you own the S and P 500, and debt to equity is over 100. percent Net debt, net debt to equity is on the order of 75. percent And so, you know, if you're a 15 ROE, it nets down to a, a 10 return on capital. So, you know, from there, you know, you 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 kind of think through, you know, if you're a Disney and you prudently cut your dividend. And I think there's, you know, no more rational use of preserving capital during a, a, a pandemic. You don't know how long this thing is going to last. I think that was absolutely the right thing to do. So now you have a pause, you know, a chance to step back and kind of think through. Well, what I pointed out to the folks at Disney was, look, I mean, you've got this potential change to the tax code, and we're going to know a lot more a week from now or two weeks from now what the final outcome is going to be. But if we're going to materially raise taxes to the taxable investor. And I think you can make this case for a non-taxable investor, but you, you kind of think through, you know, we, we talked about Disney a few weeks, couple of weeks ago. You know, in my, in my book, Disney was easily going to do $80 billion in revenues pre-pandemic. And that would have combined the assets they got from 21st Century Fox with the kind of the former Disney, probably going to be no more than 60 or $65 billion this year. So much of the business has been taken out of the knees. You know, the, the parks have been either entirely closed now, you know, some are partially open. California is still closed. Movies are not being made. Um, you know, there are some TV shows that are being made in bubbles, but, you know, very little content is being act- actively produced. Sports have come back on. So the majority of, of the entirety of Disney, Disney was just hobbled. And, you know, the business is not going to earn normalized profitability, obviously. And there's a sense that, you know, who, who knows for how long they might burn cash. But I think prudently they cut the dividend. They borrowed a bunch of money, which put a lot of cash on the balance sheet. There's something like $25 billion in cash sitting there now. You know, but you know, you've taken the debt levels up from mid-40 billions up to mid-60 billions uh, to increase liquidity, which I think again was was prudent capital strategy. Uh, it was the absolute right move. And so, you know, instead of rushing right back into paying a dividend, you know, think through, especially for a taxable investor that's now looking at, at damn near double 
the marginal rate taxes on dividends. And what does that cost you? I mean, so, you know, if, if in my world, Disney is going to do, you know, normalized 80 billion in revenues and earn 12 billion in profit, uh, which I think is realistic. Um, I think that's probably what they would have earned this year. And if you take their shares outstanding of about, I don't know, 1.8 billion, you know, it gets you a book value, uh, which is book is book was up by about 40 billion from the goodwill and the other intangibles. So, you know, book value is, you know, say, say roughly $90 billion. So on 12 billion in earnings, the business earns 13, a little over 13% on equity. Um, I actually think returns on incremental capital are a lot higher. You know, you've taken the equity number up, the, 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 the book value up, obviously, for the premium that they paid to assets. And, you know, I think they really are in high teens, even into the 20s on reinvested capital. And so to the shareholders that are dividend payers, you know, if you take that $12 billion in dividends and on a 25% payout, which gives you to the $3 billion that they pay, if you think about the current state of affairs at a 20% plus the 3.8, I mean, on $3 billion, you're losing about um, $700 million, right? And so, you know, $2.3 billion of, of, of that would be, would be uh, you know, I, I as a shareholder, shareholders have to reinvest it. So, you know, I'm losing 700 of the dividend. I'm losing 25%. The business itself is retaining $9 billion. Well, if you double the tax rate, now we're going to tax ourselves at 43.4%. I'm losing $1.3 billion if I being the collective shareholders of Disney and we're all taxable. So, you know, now I've got to put that money back to work. And if I'm going to go buy shares of Disney, you know, I'm only going to get the earnings yield. So I've already lost almost half of my profit to taxes. Now I've got to reinvest it and I can't buy the business back at book value. I can't buy it at a 13.3. So, you know, I think there's there's a lot of just simple math that says the taxable shareholder generally, unless he or she needs the cash to live on, is far more better with a business that has the opportunity set to reinvest capital, to reinvest capital. And, and in Disney's case, you know, if they're really just going to earn the stated ROE of 13.3, again, I think it's a lot higher. I think, I think they've got the opportunity to drive the profit margin from what I would call a normalized 15% up to 20%. You just play around with the math, and I, as a shareholder, don't want a dividend. I would rather not pay 43% of my profit, the cash coming from Disney, as dividends, especially because I think they've got the opportunity to reinvest. And so which levers can they pull? Well, you know, my, my first suggestion really was I would look to take a machete to some of the debt that you guys took on. And so thinking about the changes to the tax code in 2017, obviously with interest paid on debt being tax deductible, when we took rates from 35% to 21% on an after-tax basis, that was actually an increase in the cost of capital because, you, because you know, you know, now, now you've got you know, a much lower uh, tax deduction being taken on, on your interest payments. So at 35%, if you assume a 4%, and I'm going to screw the math up, so I'm going to try to do it really quickly. If you're paying 4% and you've got a 35% tax rate, your after-tax cost would be 2.6. If you're at 21%, uh, your after-tax cost of debt would have risen to 3.2. And if you take the rate at 28%, your after-tax cost of debt would be 2.9%. So you're actually going to get a lower cost of capital on the, on the debt side by taking the tax rate up. And so 
you know, if my if if my alternative there is to buy back shares at what's now an 18 multiple to earning, which is a 5.6% earnings yield, you know, I think retiring shares might make sense. You know, the reason you would want to attack the debt is Disney will tell you that they want to maintain an A debt rating. And, you know, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means total debt to EBITDA of less than three. On a normalized basis, if you take the debt of, you, you, you take the debt as it was pre-pandemic, they would have comfortably been at not much more, even maybe less than two to one. But here you are with earnings way down, even negative. Cash flows are way down. So, you know, you've got to go now work with your lenders on covenants. To me, I mean, depending how long this pandemic runs, you might want to clean up the balance sheet a little bit. The debt burden between the debt they took on for the, the acquisition and here to increase liquidity on the cash side of the pandemic was prudent. But now there's a lot more debt than makes me comfortable as a shareholder. And so you look to pay that down. You never want to pay a dividend. You never want to buy a share back if it, if it encumbers the balance sheet to the point where you can't write out the deepest of recessions. And so... I, I, I think debt ought to be the first priority. And then from there, you just go through, you go through the laundry list of alternatives, you know, acquisitions, repurchase of shares, actually, you know, as, as, as Danny Loeb said, increasing content spending. Uh, I, I think, I think the problem I have with, with his plan was, you know, third, third point tends to lease their shares, you know, and, and I come at this from, you know, as an owner who permanently wants to own my position and so I think deeply for my half of clients that are tax-paying entities, families and wealthy individuals, myself as an individual. And, you know, I think long and hard about, about changes in the tax rates. You know, I, 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 I would love to see Disney retain capital, I think, given their, their opportunity to reinvest is there. But I don't want to be in a position of telling them what to do. Um, and, I'd, and I'd always want to keep that balance sheet in a less encumbered position than it's probably in presently. So who knows what's going to happen? We're going to find out a lot more in a week on the election front, how uh, you know the, the winds are likely to blow. It's going to take some time to implement policy. I can tell you that when tax codes have changed in the past, there have been years during my investment career with you know a, a tax code change that was made in the early part or mid part of a year that was made retroactive to the beginning of the year. And so you know, I think about as an investor, I've got positions that are highly appreciated, that are fully valued, that for a taxable investor, you know, if I'm thinking about selling those shares and I'm going to do it this year or next year, I'm probably more inclined to sell them this year thinking I've got, you know, what very well may wind up being a much lower tax consequence. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm not going to sell a share, then I better be committed to holding it for a long term because I don't want to be paying 43% either on dividends certainly not on capital gains. And so you want to get through the next four years or eight years or however long it takes to ideally at some point get back down to a lower capital gains tax rate. So there are a lot of moving parts on the tax front that should enter the equation as an investor and, and as a manager of capital for taxable entities. So, you know, I've, I've, you know, droned into, I've drilled into probably too much minutia. And so I'd, I'd love to get you guys thoughts, but, you know, at, at a higher level, I think dividend policy is probably not, attacked well enough by boards of directors and managers. And, you know, given this big change in the tax code, it's probably a very good time for every management team of, you know, both publicly traded companies and even private businesses to think through those capital levers and, you know, optimize them for taxes. So, you know, I'd love, love, love thoughts from the two of you guys. Well, you're going to get me going on this one because, you know, this falls into my bugaboo of, 
of areas where, to your point, I think managements and boards are still stuck in the dark ages. And it's just confounding to me that dividends still get this bizarre, arbitrary treatment. It's a sacred cow in every possible way for for the vast majority of companies. And so I can't opine on Disney or what they should do. I, I don't, I'm not close enough to the situation there. Um, I read your letter, but um, I can't add a whole lot to that discussion. And I haven't spent nearly as much time analyzing the changes or pending changes to the tax code. Um, but uh, it, look, the, the story has always been that it's a very tax inefficient way of paying money out. And the only reason you should ever pay money out in this form is if you truly have nothing better to do with it. And the part that really rankles me is not that management teams and boards decide to pay dividends out because they have nothing better to do with it. It's because they're paying it out while they absolutely have better things to do with it and while they're actively doing those other things. So it's just unbelievable to me how many companies continue to either carry too much debt or pay down debt to a targeted level or reinvest in the business or engage in accretive and, and profitable M&A transactions or, or you know, let their shares languish or, or even engage in big share purchases all the while giving this, you know, separate and special treatment to dividends. I mean, I had a call this morning um, with a company I know very well that I won't name. Uh, it's a very successful company. It's got, I mean, look, it's it's suffering a little bit during the pandemic. Uh, you know, sales will be down maybe 10, 12% this year, something like that. But this is a company that will still produce a 25 to 30% operating margin. And almost all of that operating profit will convert to free cash flow. Um, so this is a very, very profitable company with a free cash flow margin well into the 20s and a return on capital, you know, probably above 30% even this year. And they just chose to hike their dividend by 5%. And even though the stock is off 30, 40% year to date, eh, you know, we're just going to be very cautious about share repurchases at this level. It's like, okay, well, you're doing all these other things. You're spending money on M&A even this year. You're spending more money on a cash dividend that's always been tax inefficient. You've bought back a lot of stock in the past. And now with the stock down a whole bunch, you know, it's time to be cautious on, on that. I mean, it's just totally arbitrary. It's at, at odds with everything else that they're doing. It's just totally bizarre. But they, they to your point, Chris, I think see themselves aspiring to a record of hiking the dividend every single year kind of thing, which is just so arbitrary and so dumb and and has never gotten anyone anywhere. I've, I've always asked every CEO that's ever, every board member that's ever espoused this to say, okay, look, what has that ever gotten somebody? Has that ever saved a single company from ruin? Has it ever attracted a better quality shareholder? Has it ever done anything once you've reached this holy land of X straight years of dividend increases and they just kind of blink or mumble nothing to say because of course it's ridiculous um so I, I i don't know what else to say about it it drives me totally nuts and i can think of very few companies that i'd be all that excited to own where i'm like boy i just wish they'd pay me more dividends it just almost never happens yeah i think the i think the absolute case to be made for paying a dividend and even paying a material dividend is that most managers and most businesses don't know how to allocate capital well. Oh, sure, they, sure. Yeah. They absolutely waste it. And so instead of trying to make yourself a bigger entity, which, by the way, is going to increase your compensation, you go out and do deals and you pay prices that make no sense. 
you offset the dilution that comes from your executive compensation, which we've belabored the point on on a number of conversations here recently, but you have no regard for the intrinsic value of the shares that you're buying back. Obviously, you should only buy them back if they're cheap. So it's just done badly. And in those situations where, where most don't get it, give me the money and let me deal with it. It's just you don't want it done on such a tax inefficient basis. And so, you know, you find those places and Berkshire Hathaway would be an extreme example. And, you know, I mentioned that my whole portfolio aggregate payout is only 20%. Well, Berkshire is a large part of that and they don't pay a dividend and you want Omaha and you have wanted Omaha retaining capital for 60, 56 or 57 years and earning, you know, what had been 20 point returns on equity which in the last 20 years have been 10-point returns on equity. You don't want money coming back. And, you know, Mr. Buffett has made some great illustrations over the years in his, in, in, in his shareholder letters that walk through the math to that effect. You know, I think, you know, I, I look at companies that I own like Costco that really have done it well on a capital allocation front. And in terms of dividend policy in particular, when I first bought my shares 2004, I paid 29 bucks a share for them. They had just started paying a dividend and they set the payout at about 20% of profit. And I thought, oh hell, does that mean that Costco's not gonna be able to grow their units and square footage at a high rate? Does that mean there's just not a, a, as large of a pool for capital reinvestment as I had thought? And turns out they're just disciplined on the growth front. And, you know, they thought that retaining 80% of their profits made sense, and that was the amount they needed to grow. And so fast forward, here we are today, and starting in 2012 or 13, what you've seen as the business has gotten bigger with less of an ability to add to square footage at the same rate that they had added to it in the past, they've paid three special dividends. And I, I know they've paid me a $7 and a $5 and a $7 per share dividend. So $19 in dividends over, let's say, a six-year period of time. And without having talked to them and with them not having telegraphed what they're doing, I know changes in tax policy have kind of driven some of those decisions. And so, you know, Costco tends to pay these special dividends when they've accumulated surplus capital. In the history of running the business, they tend to sit there with cash on the balance sheet, offsetting debt. They don't use a lot of operating leases. They tend to own their real estate. The use of leases are light. And so when cash starts to build up, they've paid them out and they've done it kind of tax efficiently. And I guarantee you, they're going to say, if it looks like we're going to get a material increase in in taxes on dividends for some portion of shareholders, they've already amounted, they, they, they've already amassed surplus capital. So I love this philosophy of paying these special dividends at the point where capital has built up and you don't have a better use. They've proven that they don't want to grow the franchise faster than they do. They've proven, I think, by not buying back shares over the years that they've never felt that they were, you know, intelligently undervalued enough to, to, to intelligently make an acquisition. And so, you know, they pay me these big one, one-time special dividends, which is fine. That's great. You know, give me the money and I'll do something else with it. They feel like they can't reinvest it in the franchise. It's just not the mentality of most companies. And it, it drives you crazy and it drives me crazy. And it's just badly done. And I hope given the potential changes in the tax code, there are more and more boardroom discussions that are taking place about about what how well, best to set dividend policy. I, I, I have to be pessimistic there. I don't think the changes to the tax code will even register in those conversations at the board level because I think those conversations are generally so brain dead and because the incentives are just not there. I mean, your average director just isn't holding on to shares 
or doesn't own enough shares for the dividend to even register in his or her calculation of, of what to do here. So I, I highly doubt this somewhat marginal change in the tax code will will have a big impact here, even though it should. But to your point, again, I think special dividends can make lots of sense. Costco's done reasonably well. Well, their Constellation software's done very mm-hmm. well there. It can absolutely make sense. It's way more pragmatic to be flex- flexible rather than to lock into this supposed virtue signaling of we have a steady and rising dividend every year come hell or high water, which is just totally arbitrary and stupid. And secondarily, I mean, as we've seen to your point about Omaha, I mean, you you can create your own dividend and do it on a much more flexible as needed basis and often with better tax treatment, right? Than than you can if you if you have a dividend forced down your throat by the company when a lot of your fellow fellow shareholders may not want or need it. So that's another way to to, to get around this problem. Now, the pushback you'll get, of course, is you'll have people correctly point out, at least at an aggregate level, that a lot of the aggregate return of the market, if you own the whole market or an S&P index, 500 index fund as a proxy, a lot of that total return over the years is driven by the dividend payout. And that is entirely true. I would argue that that's mistaking cause and effect. I mean, that is truly driven by companies paying dividends out of excess profits and capital because a lot of companies that are in the index are big and stable and mature and they truly don't have any good use for it. And to your point, it's almost like they're they're paying this out in spite of themselves because none of them would admit that they're bad capital allocators. None of them would admit that they're likely to waste it if they hang on to it. So it is perversely somewhat a good thing, somewhat of a good thing that a lot of these big companies are, are kind of accidentally bumbling into paying out a big chunk of, of dividends, it, it does keep them from doing other things. But I would argue that, you know, just as as the median company doesn't drive the return of the index over time, it's the real winners netting better than the losers. The same is true of dividends. I mean, the average company paying out dividends is still generally a pretty brain dead exercise. Yeah. If you look over time, go back, you know, kind of post 1930s, you had two or three decades, four decades even where the payouts were 60% and above on average. You know, let, let's say two-thirds of dividends were paid out. And a lot of that was 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 the 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 mentality coming out of the Great Depression. I mean, you sure. had businesses sitting during that period that had, you know, net cash on the balance sheet and no use for spending the cash. You know, they were they were really, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, frowned upon for buying back shares. Uh, you know, kind of perceived as 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 a uh, almost unethical use of capital, and so you know they wound up ultimately paying out a lot more of that that cash and reserves, and you know they they in the depression they they taken leverage levels down from you know what were levels nowhere near as onerous as they are today, but they cleaned up the balance sheets. So you came out of World War II with you know pristine corporate balance sheets. You had all that growth that we talked about last week. All of that, you know, growth in real GDP per capita, you know, double the levels that we've seen in the last, you know, thirty or forty years, and it was just, it was, it was a great time, and and payout rates dropped from, you know, two thirds down to maybe a third of profits. And here, and I think to your point, you know, here we are in the last decade or so, and they've crept back up to where the payout on 2019 earnings. So forget about the COVID because earnings are way off this year, but you know, payout rate was about 45 percent. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I'm very jaded and cynical and skeptical that that 90 plus percent, 95 percent of management teams really don't get it. They squander it. They're not going to do it well. And so, you know, you know, they probably ought to just pay a dividend. And it, it's just a shame that you know we're going to attack capital in the way that we might attack it. Uh, to me, you know, sh- you know, 
carving out 43% in taxes, plus taxes that are taken at the state level, which I hadn't mentioned. It just makes it really hard as a taxable investor to make it all work. But you're right. There's not a lot of re, there, there, there's just not a lot of reinvestment sets broadly available. Uh, CapEx, even with the provisions in the TCJA that made it much more attractive to, to spend on capital, you didn't see a big jump up in cap spending. I just think we've kind of overbuilt the capital stock. R&D spending has come up, but it has not come up as much as you wanted it to come up. So maybe, you know, this this is it. Maybe, you know, perhaps we're at stasis and we ought to just pay dividends and how at whatever rate, rate, rate they're taxed. But I, I can tell you it's going to be tougher and tougher if we raise the rate that much as an after-tax investor, taxable investor, full paying. Uh, for those that have a lot of money and make a lot of money, it's, it's, it's a big chunk out of their hide. I guess maybe a lot of uh, management teams, you know, even view their dividend policy uh, a little bit as an investor relations exercise, you know, just uh, kind of uh, how the fund world is structured. Do you want to, or they want to appeal to income investors? And in order to do that, they got to show some kind of a, a dividend, at least a token one. It obviously makes no sense from a capital allocation standpoint, but I think they say, hey, we can get our stock price higher by uh, being accessible to this chunk of uh investors out there. Uh, so, you know, I think that's maybe part of the reason why you often see these uh, token dividends paid. And then if you can make them grow year after year after year, you think internally that you're somehow making yourself more attractive uh, to income uh, seeking investors. And, you know, that's not a great argument, but I can definitely see that happening uh, at corporations. Um, I kind of like dividends as a um, discipline tool on management just to make sure they know who they're actually working for. I feel like if a company has never paid any dividends, uh, you know, they can just kind of assume as a default that uh, they just get to keep the money. So it's nice to have that discipline, but to your point, Chris, it's probably not the the most uh, definitely not the most tax efficient way to to do this. Um, I'm wondering if there is a tax efficient way to give back capital to shareholders. Uh, any creative ways? You know, um, if you look at John Malone, are there examples in his history uh, of of these uh, entities and companies? You know, how has he? gone about uh, doing this because I know he will do whatever it takes to uh, to be tax efficient. You can buy and sell assets. I mean, you, you know, in, in Omaha, for example, there, there's a, a long history of not paying taxes where you don't have to pay taxes and you've been able to swap assets un, under the corporate tax code. You know, I know, um, you know, when, when, when the Washington Post was effectively sold, you know, they swapped the position for a television station and an ABC affiliate in Miami, even some shares of Berkshire Hathaway. You know, they wound up selling a highly appreciated position and really paid no capital gains taxes in doing so. You know, between spinoffs and recapitalizations, you know, you know the, the folks that run around with levered entities um, have been able to do a lot of that, John. To me, broadly, I mean, if you own an index, if, you, if you're a passive investor owning the S&P 500, and you're not analyzing the degree to which capital is allocated well 
or badly, then I think broadly speaking, you want as much of a dividend as you can get because if 90, 95, whatever percent, and I just made the numbers up, but if, if the vast, vast majority of capital is allocated poorly, then you're better off getting it. You know, I think the luxury of being an active investor like we all are is you can find those handful of management teams that do it well, like Disney, you know, like Constellation Software, like Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, you know, I look through the names in my portfolio and I've got companies that get it. I've got one business that has learned over time they can't grow and they probably ought not reinvest in expanding the business. And as a byproduct of that, you know, not really favoring sherry purchases, which I think they should have done over the years, they've increased the payout towards almost all of profit. And I'm okay with that. You know, I know what I'm getting. I know I'm getting a business that really isn't going to grow much, that I know is internally profitable, run conservatively. And I, I don't mind the dividend payout being very high in that case. But again, I've got some that cyclical businesses that ought not be paying big dividends and only doing so as a function of being on this ridiculous dividend aristocrat list, which is such a badly named thing. So you know, I, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of room that that managements and boards can think about it. But I'm I'm absolutely with Phil. I don't hold out a lot of hope that it's broadly to be done well. But you know, if, if you run concentrated portfolios and you can find those handful of management teams that do do it well, I find it a huge competitive advantage as an investor. And John, to your point about discipline, I mean, that's a valid thought. It kind of reminds me of the same argument, a bit of a corollary about having a lot of debt, though, that if you have a lot of debt, you're going to prioritize running the business very efficiently and very leanly to service all that debt. And I think you can sort of get trapped into the same problem with a dividend, and, and particularly in a dividend where you're expected to maintain a steady and high dividend or a growing dividend each and every year because that's just totally bogus. There's just not a business on earth that grows in a straight, steady, linear fashion every single year. Businesses go up, businesses go down. Even the really successful ones have really bad periods of time where you know it's just not realistic to expect a dividend. And by the way, a lot of the most successful businesses in the history of the world never really paid any meaningful dividends. Right. I mean, not just the ones we've talked about here today, but plenty of others. And so the other thing that strikes me is, is if you want to instill this discipline, the way to do it, in my opinion, would be how it's done in a lot of the rest of the world. I think particularly in a lot of European markets where and they only get it partially. Right, I think it's more of an accident of practice. But if you said, look, you know, we're going to target to pay some level of our cash after tax profits out as a dividend but we're going to do it on an annual or semi-annual basis. And we're going to sit down after those results are in and decide what makes sense. And when we make that decision, we'll communicate it, hopefully with a little bit of explanation involved. So it's not just this arbitrary, we're going to raise it by one penny a share because that happens to be 5%, regardless of what else happened in the world and regardless of what other alternatives we have out there, regardless of what tax policy is in place, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to make a common sense business decision about what makes sense every year or every six months. And, and, and yes, that's more variable. And yes, that doesn't come with total certainty. But guess what? A lot of the dividends that come with supposed certainty are just absolutely thin air. It's, it's false certainty. It's totally bogus manufactured nonsense. I mean, the number of times I've seen people get suckered into buying something because, oh, it's got a dividend of X. And it's like, well, guys, they're not even close to earning that. You're not likely to ever recoup your investment on this. It's like, it's like getting into bad fixed income investing, right? Where people are buying something because of the yield and totally ignoring the fact that it's not a creditworthy piece of paper. And so I, I just think if, if you want to 
pursue this avenue of dividends as a discipline enforcing mechanism, that's great. I just think there are far better ways to go about actually doing it. Bill, you introduce what I think is a great corollary there. And, and you take some of the very best businesses that have existed over time that have set low and no dividend payout policies for a long time. And I think a casual observer could look at them and say, so much of that success was driven by how well they reinvested capital. And I would argue in a couple of cases offhand, Microsoft and Google, you know, Microsoft only in 2004, I think started paying dividends. They paid the big $3 dividend at the outset and then have paid a regular one since Google hasn't paid one. I think, I think the success of the core business can absolutely in cases mask poor reinvestment of profit. Right. I mean, sure. you look at all the acquisitions that Microsoft has made over the years, and most of them were duds. Now, they may have been rounding errors in the, in the scope of the entirety of the business and cash just built and built and built. But you look at all the, the investments that Google has made. Okay. So, you know, YouTube has knocked the cover off the ball, but I think the, the majority of the things that they have done have not been great. And so, is there a way to measure? And I think you can at some level. How much of that profit was reinvested and invested in deals that were absolutely terrible, yet the business continued to compound at such a high rate, you didn't realize that capital allocation wasn't very good inside those businesses? Hey, uh, Chris, I'm wondering what would be kind of the ideal tax treatment for dividends? Would we want them to be treated the same as buybacks in order to kind of really leave the decision purely up to capital allocation? I mean, what... What's kind of the ideal scenario for you, other than a zero percent, of course? Well, I like zero, but not realistic. I think we've gotten it pretty close here in the latest change post-2017 with the TCGA. I mean, you know, investment in, in, in investment securities has already been taxed. You know, as, as an employee, as a worker, I've been taxed on my income and with my after-tax profits, I've bought shares in a company. The profit of those businesses is being taxed and then I'm being taxed again on dividends. And so to me, setting the marginal rate, the highest rate on, on taxation of dividends and on capital gains at a lower rate than the marginal rate on earned income is just immensely intelligent. I think when you start talking about now taxing dividends and capital gains at the same, even higher rate as ordinary ordinary income is headed, I think you're going to destroy a lot of productivity. You're going to destroy, I don't know if you're going to destroy the will to work, but you're going to take away the resources from those that employ people to be able to employ as many people and put as much capital to work. You're simply redistributing wealth, and maybe that's the price of you know, having run government debts up to the level they are, you have to go after those with money. You know, when you deficit spend, you can only finance deficit spending with taxation or with inflation. And maybe that's where we are. But, you know, to me, you've got to incentivize capital formation. There's an awful lot of academic and economic thought on that matter. And, you know, taxing it at half the rate that you tax income to me is, is, is if you're going to tax it at all, a pretty intelligent way to do it, John. Makes sense. Well, great. Uh, the, that was a good discussion there. Uh, Phil, I know you wanted to talk about forecasting surprises and disasters based on an, on a Phil Tetlock uh, article. So turn it to you. 
Yeah, thanks, John. So I think everyone is, is going to be focused on the big forecasting surprise of 2020 so far, which was, of course, the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has upended the world in so many different ways. And I think one of the big takeaways that I think we've talked about before has just been that it was not necessarily a big focus on anyone's list. If you read all those year-end lists where a lot of Wall Street types forecast and prognosticate about what's going to matter next year. If you go back to December of 2019, when this virus was already in existence and already spreading unbeknownst to most of us, all of those lists would have included all sorts of things that are just totally and completely irrelevant. And the one thing that really did matter to absolutely everyone was not on the list. Now, of course, there were plenty of people out there sounding the alarm about the possibility of a pandemic. And and so we'll get back to that in a moment. But what, what really caught my eye was there's an essay um, in the current issue of foreign affairs, the November, December, 2020 issue of foreign affairs. The whole topic of the issue is what are we missing predicting the next crisis? And the the lead article, the first article in it is, is written by Phil Tetlock and a co-author. Um, and it's entitled a better crystal ball, the right way to think about the future. And so for anyone who's not familiar, we'll link to both that in the show notes and some of his prior work, which is just fantastic. Uh, expert political judgment was about 15, almost 20 years ago, I think. Uh, a book that he wrote about the failure of political experts to forecast geopolitical events and, and CIA analysts and, and, and various types. And so the government actually um, enlisted his help in creating a forecasting tournament that was actually immensely successful and, and led to some really interesting outcomes. He wrote a follow-up book probably four or five years ago, maybe called Super Forecasting. It was also fantastic. And in this article, he's actually saying that... Um, you need to marry two different types of forecasting to get this sort of thing right. And so one is what he calls scenario planning, which a lot of people in the business world are probably familiar with, actually has its roots in, in defense and, and government military type planning. And in that, you'll basically say that there are just so many different path-dependent possible outcomes. You know, if X, then Y, and you sort of go through these permutations of, of what could happen in the world or what could happen in your individual business. And you just sort of go through these different scenarios and think about them. And the emphasis is on imagination and what could happen and, and sort of working through these theoretical and, and hypothetical examples. Uh, the second type is more probabilistic forecasting, where in his good judgment style forecasting tournaments, you're actually asked to put numbers down next to very specific concrete forecastable events. And he's saying you actually need to do a combination of the two to get to the best possible results. And, and the article is not very long. It's actually very, very well written, uh, very thoughtful. And so what he suggests is something like a two-by-two two matrix on the scenario planning now, uh, uh, paradigm and then a, a more forecastable quali- quantitative uh, list of things that you can look to as signposts to decide which of those scenario forecasts are actually starting to come through because you're never really going to know. And, and he acknowledges that if you start looking out into three to five years, it gets really, really hard. And even the best experts in his tournaments don't do very well. But so it's a way to kind of scenario plan what might happen and then use some more six to 12 to 18 month kind of explicit forecast tests to say which of those scenarios is actually starting to come to fruition. So an example I cooked up would be totally arbitrary and very generic and vanilla would be something like, is Amazon common stock a good investment over the next three to five years at the current price? And in that scenario, you would say something like, well, in three to five years, Amazon could be as a business, you know, completely and totally dominant. It could be still ascending 
toward dominance. It could be somewhat stagnant, or it could be declining or even imploding. And so it's, again, kind of a two-by-two matrix matrix about the four possible states of the world. But then to assess which one of those four states is is likely, because knowing that those four states are possible isn't really going to do you very much, very much good if you don't know how likely each one is, you would, you would make some explicit forecasts along the lines to say something like you know, market share of AWS will be up by 10 points by the end of next year, fiscal 2021, or um, prime memberships will be flat or declining over the next 12 months. And so depending on what the answers are to those types of questions, and you'd put explicit numbers on those, and then as those mileposts were reached, or as you started to have to adjust those numbers, because just because you make a forecast now doesn't mean you don't adjust it. I mean, as new data comes in tomorrow, next week, next month, next quarter, you tweak those numbers to reflect reality as things progress. That's how you decide which one of those four scenarios is um, is becoming more likely. And I, I, I think most of us probably have elements of this in our investment process, but maybe not quite as explicit and maybe not quite as tied together. So it struck me as a very practical, very smart framework to employ um, for investment purposes. And then just for fun, I mean, the, or, or maybe not fun, really the opposite of fun, the, the really dark side is the, the rest of the issue also talks about how complacency today is often where tomorrow's disaster lurks. And this has also been true, both in the data and anecdotally. I mean, if you really want to get scared and worried about what could go wrong next, it's almost never the thing that people are really, really focused on and really, really worried about. So if people are obsessing about interest rate policy or the election or uh, you know, some sort of macro event or even the virus for that matter. I mean, chances are that stuff is so well thought about and so many people are worried about it that it's A, getting the proper attention or even too much attention and B, the thing you should be really worried about is the thing that's a clear and present danger that's not getting the attention. So some of the things on the list or, or that are discussed in other essays by other experts would be cybersecurity, climate change, US-China relations. And ironically, I don't know if it was by coincidence, but Tetlock and his co-author actually used U.S.-China relations um, as an example of their work and their paradigm. I would so I would add to my own list. I would say nuclear and biological war would probably be right at the top of the list of things that people are just not, or even just a one-off uh, accident or, or armed skirmish and along that front. A certainly, cyber attack would be neck and neck with that. Um, I think if anyone remembers, maybe three, four, five years ago there was an unexplained series of attacks on the electrical grid in Northern California. It was in San Jose, I think, where um, some snipers were shooting high-powered rifles at one of the major substations in Silicon Valley that, had they been successful, could have potentially taken the grid down um, in that area for for days or weeks or even months. Uh, so something like a national or, or regional failure of the electrical grid would be right up at the top of the list for me as well. And so these are things that are just like the pandemic. I mean, everybody likes to talk about Bill Gates's TED talk a few years ago about the possibility of a pandemic. And it was like, everybody just kind of acknowledges like, oh yeah, that's a risk. That would be really bad. And then nobody really does anything about it, right? And and so, you know, again, I don't have all the answers here, but, you know, it, quoted in this article too is that um, Dwight Eisenhower's famous quote when he was president was that plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And so, the, you know, he means by that, of course, the process of actually going through this exercise and thinking about what could go wrong, what could happen, sort of like a pre-mortem was just commonly done in a lot of investment firms. That is absolutely invaluable and you need to think through what could really go wrong. So 
on that happy note, I'll open it up to you guys and see what you think is should be on the list for uh, disasters that are around the corner that we're not paying enough attention to, or you know, comments on this uh, you know interesting framework that Tetlock has put out there. But that's interesting. I, I don't know, you know, what I should or could add. Um, you know, it's a lot of that seems like higher level thinking, and you know, for one that spends most of his time kind of trolling around the weeds of thinking about businesses and what can go wrong. I think at the end of the day, investors of capital all think probabilistically. You know, I think we think critically about all the things go wrong in a business and an industry. I think at a lot of levels, we're risk managers. You would say the same thing about underwriters of insurance, certainly reinsurance, right? You know, I guess in my mind, the whole world seems enamored with a lot of these new fashionable businesses where you've got to be a pretty damn good forecaster if you're going to pay 20 times revenues for an entity to get to where you're really comfortable and highly confident that the evolution of revenues and margins will work out. Uh, you know, if I'm paying 140% of sales for my companies and I'm not paying 20 times revenues, that's a big difference. But, you know, when I think about Disney, you know, you have to forecast at some level how long it's going to take to get back to normal levels of uh, revenues and profitability, what the business looks like over the next five and 10 years, how they manage all of this dislocation and what was a different way of distributing content. It's interesting. You talk about complacency. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, but I, for fun, you know, I, I don't consider what we do forecasting at all, but I suppose the, that's really all we do at some level. Right. I wrote in. I, I wrote an old one of my fun client letters was January one two thousand. It's on our website, and just for fun, it was the turn of the millennium. So I made a series of predictions for the next fifteen years, and you know, you choose a long enough lens so you can't be held to it. It's kind of that old joke about you know trying to forecast interest rates. Well, I'll give you a date, or I'll give you a, a number, but I can't give you both because you'd be you know held held to the fire too much. But I, you know, I. Had, you know, the first prediction was Microsoft shareholders would lose money for 15 years, which they wound up doing. But to me, that was easy because at you know, 620 billion market cap on 20 billion revenues, despite the you know, huge success of the firm and its 15 years as a public company, you just applied the math of reason as to what a normal multiple and a normal valuation would look like, even if the business were to continue to grow at a high rate. That was easy. I had internet stocks would generally run out of cash and fail. Uh, interest rates, which which were then six or seven percent, would fall to three percent, um, which they did, and that was really just a long lens guess on the fact that we had too much debt, which would ultimately be deflationary. So a lot of that was easy, but I, one of them was the trend toward private ed education would uh, persist and continue, and with no you know notion that we'd be you know having half the kids in the country uh, learning remotely on Zoom as we are here in the pandemic, but, you know, the, you know there was a trend in private education. Um, the Washington Post owned Kaplan, I think it was. We had shares in Apollo Group, which was a in, in Phoenix, Phil, where, where, where you yeah. were, a fast-growing private education company, University of Phoenix. I think at, at their all-time highs, they had half a million students or 600,000 students. It was the biggest school in the country. And I you know, I'd forecast that uh, you know, this 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 trend was pervasive and you had to capitalize on it. Well, had you been complacent and just, you know, used your model from, you know, a 15-year model and assumed it would it would get there and you weren't pay, you were, and you weren't paying anywhere near those kinds of prices, 
but you had to be aware that given their success, that they were pissing off unions, they were pissing off regulators. There's a whole large swath of the of the country that does not like private education. And what Apollo called their counselors, the regulators called their, their uh, paid sales commission recruiters. And they were saying the portion of compensation that was success-based based on number of students enrolled was really a commission. And you saw regulation coming. They were, they were in court fighting it. The stock was growing. The business was booming. And if you'd realized, which we did, thankfully, early enough, and, and I suppose, you know, complacency would be the right word. You know, you, you had to get ahead of that curve before the dislocation happened. And they wound up crushing those businesses. Not a lot to add. You know, the only, the only, I guess the only thing other, that I would add is as an investor, you know, the, the, the better investors that I know, and we've talked about this on the pod, I think if you're a kid, if you're in high school, or you're going to college, I would play cards as much as you can. I think, you know, playing blackjack as I did after college, but I can't tell you how many nights I spent with a guy sitting around, you know, trying to take their money and just playing poker. I grew up with my grandparents and parents. They would have poker night, you know, every like one, one Friday every month. And at the point where I was six or seven years old, six, six or seven years old, I got into the game. And I think, you know, learning to think in odds and, you know, how many cards have you seen and how many cards are left and what are the odds of, you know, how, how many kings are left out of the number of cards that are left. I think being able to go through that math very much equates to the investing world. I, I know I've gotten probably way off topic on on the Tetlock uh, essay, which I had not read, but I guess... Yeah, I don't th- think it's a... I don't think you're wrong. I, th- I don't think it's a coincidence that most great investors, most great insurance underwriters, uh, probabilistic thinkers of all kinds have been drawn to games of chance, whether it's poker, bridge, counting cards at blackjack, whatever the case may be. I think that's that's definitely true. That's uh, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. John, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, if I can just jump in. Uh, Phil, I was wondering, as you were talking about the Tetlock article and kind of uh, uh, this, this kind of forecasting, where does um, the concept of wisdom of the crowds uh, fit in here uh, by James Surowiecki, that, that book that came out some years ago? Sure. Um, I'd be curious for your, your take on that. Yeah, he actually um, addresses it directly. And so his, his idea for this is that um, you would exploit that explicitly in the, in the second phase there where you're taking you know, a critical mass of expert forecasters to evaluate those signposts. So you'd, you'd pull, you know, maybe 10, 50, 100 smart Amazon analysts to say, what do you think the odds are that prime subscribers are up 10% year over year, up 5% year over year, flat year over year, down 5%, et cetera. And so using those numbers to kind of inform your decision based on the, the two by two matrix in the on the other side of the you know the equation so to speak which is you know is is Amazon already reached a, a point of dominance is it still ascending is it stagnant etc and so you'd you'd do that across a range of metrics and obviously there's a lot of art and skill in designing those metrics and and creating the right milepost to measure what really matters and I think this gets back to what a lot of great investors do. Um, almost flawlessly is to just immediately hone in on the two, three, four, five things that really matter to a business and what's going to really determine their success over a period of time. Um, but to your point about the wisdom of the crowds, you know, you'd want to you'd want to take that group of 
quantitative expert forecasts and and continue to repeat it, right? So when when they run these forecasting tournaments, um, they're open for a, quite a period of time, and people can adjust their uh, predictions as new data come in. I mean, most recently they did it even with the pandemic actually explicitly and said, you know, by what date will a vaccine be widely available? And there's, you know, lots of definitions, et cetera. And you have to make sure it's not just some sort of arbitrary thing. But, um, you know, so you can make an, an, an initial guess and say, you know, that I think it 30% likely by February 1st and 55% likely by April 1st, et cetera. <clears throat> but then as the data come in, you can adjust those numbers up or down depending on, you know, which phase three trials are promising, which phase three trials are successful, et cetera. So um, you're trying to not only harvest the wisdom of the crowds, but harvest the right crowds and harvest it, you know, repeatedly so that it's not just a one-off thing. Again, in terms of kind of the areas where we should be making forecasts versus where we shouldn't. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? That's 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 kind of a really interesting um, thing to to keep in mind. I think for all of us, because I know I get suckered into forecasting things where I really have no expertise. <laughs> too too yeah. much of the time. Yeah. So he makes the point that it's actually less about being a bona fide expert than it is about being. Uh, numerate and having a facility with numbers, having a deep intellectual curiosity and having sort of the right framework as to how to look into these things. So, you know, being very rigorous about applying base rates um, and being sort of, you know, diligent about just not making a decision and locking in on it and engaging all of your cognitive biases and in, in defending yourself rather than getting to the closest, you know, proximate answer to, to reality. So uh, I think he's shown pretty clearly that it's not about being a credentialed expert, so to speak. It's more about displaying these, you know, right pattern of behaviors that you can actually learn if you're if you're expert at it. But, you know, look, to, to your point, I mean, you, you certainly don't want to wander too far outside your area of expertise. Um, and, and then I think secondarily is, you know, people can waste a lot of time and energy forecasting things that just don't matter. Right. I mean, I think you could make a very strong case that um, even if you had built or become a very proficient forecaster at, at modeling, uh, say, political elections, that that really probably wouldn't have earned you very much of an excess return. Whereas if you could have built something that predicted, um, you know, even something as simple as revenue growth in a lot of companies, that could have been very valuable. Right. So it's focusing on the things that are actually going to matter to whatever outcome uh, you're trying to achieve. And then secondarily, it's about, you know, forecasting mileposts that can actually be realized. So he uses the example of, you know, you can't ask the question of forecasters, will I ever fall in love? That's not really something you can evaluate in any, in any meaningful way. But you could say, will I marry Jane Smith by December 31st of 2022? That is definitely something you can forecast and evaluate, right? So kind of cutting that line between the the vague and the arbitrary and the definable and the absolute is, is really important. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it just boils down, I suppose, to, to knowing where your circle of competence is, learning where that line is, and, you know, trying to find those flip of the coin bets where you get paid more on one side of the flip. And I guess the more your knowledge base allows you to get to the ability to make a bet in one direction or another, it, it does boil down to expertise at some level. Um, you know, I, I could conjecture today because I watch a little bit of football on Sundays 
usually have the volume off, but you know, I think the Kansas City Chiefs are by far the best team in football, but I don't spend hours and hours like a like a genuine sports better would, you know, calculating the precise odds. You know, I would take uh, you know, I'd probably take some reasonable estimate of, of um, you know, the odds of getting through a normal football playoff and, you know, come up with a number, but I'd lose because there are folks that are a lot more expert in that area than I am. But, sure. And and that's a good example, though. I mean, I think that it's also been proven with the, we've talked to, Elliot will be sad to miss this. We've talked about this a little bit in our framing of sports analytics, but you could design a forecasting tournament that I think would prove pretty uh, fruitful in in capturing some outside wisdom and employing more base rates rather than the the sort of psychologically driven narrative that often dominates the discussion. So in a lot of studies they've done where, you know, draft scouting is often done by analogy. So I'm going to draft player X because he reminds me of player Y. And that's almost entirely driven on stereotypes at a glance kind of things, measurable numbers that just are totally irrelevant, like a 40-yard dash. I mean, again, we've talked about this. Nobody really runs in a straight line for 40 yards in in a football game, so it's not really a great measure for what matters, right? I mean, uh, anyway, but, you know, you could look at things like, I hate to do this for all the Chicago Bear fans, Bears fans that are out there, but if you look at something like the, the NFL draft two or three years ago when you had... Uh, to your point about the Kansas City Chiefs, you had Patrick Mahomes, you had Deshaun Watson, and you had Mitch Trubisky all come out in the first round that year. And you could have created a pretty clear two-by-two matrix that I just described and you know some pretty clear things to evaluate how likely those players were to have succeed to to succeed based on what they'd already done so you know let's say a long successful college career, let's say you know a team captainship, let's Um, You know, it doesn't have to be just winning a national championship like Deshaun Watson did. And it's not always going to capture the extreme upside outliers like Patrick Mahomes, but it it clearly sort of steers you away from this narrative-driven thing where Ryan Pace, the GM of the Bears, just kind of fell in love with Mitch Trubisky from right away. And and again, that's a forgivable sin in a lot of ways, but it, it enticed him to the point where he actually traded up one pick to take the guy who clearly turned out to be the pretty obviously worst of the three. And it, it's just, you know, that would have never happened with a broader group of experts weighing in on kind of a base rate uh, level because Mitch Trubisky had one year of kind of marginally successful college football under his belt at North Carolina, right? So, I mean, there, there was no argument to be made that he had a higher ceiling than Patrick Mahomes and, and he clearly didn't have the resume or success of Deshaun Watson. So, um, I think you could have taken a poll of football watchers and, and created a that are no more expert or no less expert than you. And I think you would have gotten to a far better decision than the Bears made in that case. You know, let me give you a, a, um, a, a real world thought about thinking as an investor in the macro versus in the bottom up. So as stock picker, if 20 years ago you had said, Chris, how much time do you spend thinking about how the the tales of the extremes of where monetary policy can take us. You know, either having extreme deflation slash depression on one end or hyperinflation on the other end. I would have said, well, uh, you know, I, they're in the tails, but they're so far in the remote of the tails that, you know, maybe they're a one in 200 event. So a, you know, whatever that is, a four standard deviation event. You know, but I would have also said, I don't think you can get total credit market debt up to 
uh, 400% of GDP from 250% of GDP and not counting all of the off-balance sheet liabilities. So today, when I'm investing in individual businesses and I'm thinking about Disney, Nike, and you know my smaller cap businesses, I am thinking more about the, the, the tails of the curve, which have fattened considerably. And so now, in my lifetime, if I had to assign the odds of experiencing you know either of the tails and maybe both of the tails you know maybe you've gone from a you know one in 200 event or one in 100 event to one in 20 so you know maybe we're now into the you know third trending toward the second standard deviation of likely outcomes and you know bottom up stock pickers shouldn't have to go through those exercises but you know, I think only for thinking probabilistically and risk risk management and, and risk managing across the portfolio should you allow that kind of mindset to creep in. So I think there's real-world applications very much so in what we do, even in places where you would have only been making kind of a fun one-off bet, which would have been over a lifetime. And now you've got to think a lot more deeply about these things that that are conceivably more near-term. And that goes to complacency and all the things you talked about. Yeah, and, and again, just to circle back on the investing side, since it's obviously the focus here, um, I think most investors at this point are probably aware of the concept of uh, doing a pre-mortem. So instead of a post-mortem where you look back at something and, and ask, why did it die? This would be in advance of making a decision or an investment. You look forward and try to predict why it would have died. So in other words, what would have gone wrong before it actually did go wrong? And I think a lot of us have done that for a long time. And I, I think I will be making a change to be just simpler and more explicit about this two-track analysis. Most great decisions, I think, have two tracks or two kind of parallel uh, processes that are tied together some way. And this kind of uh, scenario planning plus probabilistic forecasting, the, the kind of two-by-two two matrix or whatever the, the key states of the world are married to some very explicit, discrete, quantitative probabilistic forecasts, I think is just a far better way to do it. It's very simple, does not have to be complicated. And I think it'll lead to fewer mistakes over time, at least for me. If I ran a comp committee, I would want to have a pre-modem and a post-modem on all capital allocation decisions made by a CEO. And I would tie the vesting schedule and the payout rate of whatever RSUs or option shares that we're given. So if you're going to go make an acquisition, give me the pre-mortem. Where's this thing going to be in 10 years' time? Let's measure it objectively. And then before we pay you on the back end when you retire, let's evaluate how well you did. Now, obviously, a pipe dream, and that'll never happen. But I was going to say, if we ever get there, we'll be <laughs> in really good shape. I wouldn't hold your breath. But we can dream. But we can we dream. can dream. That's a great dream to have. I'm just boy, mm. <laughs> Chris. I hear. I hope nobody hears this podcast who might want to nominate you to a comp committee because uh, that may not happen after this. I, have, I don't know. Buffett's talked about how many boards he sat on and. I, I think he has said he's never been invited yeah. to sit on the comp committee. And, I think that's uh, right. Yeah, for good reason, right? For good reason. Yeah, although I've talked to a lot of CEOs that get it and lament kind of over how their boards think about motivation and incentives. And you know, I, I won't tell you who, but in the insurance world and not Berkshire, you know, so, you know so, individuals that think about the, the, the three or four things that matter, growth and book value per share, you'd be shocked at, at how many weird iterations you get by the time you introduce a uh, not only a comp committee, but you bring in the outside consultants. And you may want to take it to the most logical path you can go down. And invariably, even if you're the CEO that wants to get to the most logical payout and be properly incentivized, 
even that guy can't get it there. So it's, yeah, I, I, I think hope is lost on that front. Phil, is there any insight into forecasting things that really haven't happened in the past where you cannot draw on past experience much? Um, you know, in investing, those are sometimes the best uh, decisions, at least as far as macro investors go. You think of a George Soros bet against the Bank of England or, um, you know, somebody now betting that maybe the Hong Kong dollar is going to decouple from the U.S. dollar. Uh, just things that really you cannot uh, draw much from the past or at least not in the, you know, very uh, near neighborhood of what you're looking at. Um, any guidance there? Yeah, so he touches on it, and I'm sure if you were to ask him, and, and maybe if I reread uh, some of his prior work, he might go into it in more detail that I can't remember off the top of my head. But he he does acknowledge that um, something like meteorology, another subject near and dear to my heart, is a little bit simpler because the atmosphere is complex and almost infinite as it is, is governed by some laws of physics and chemistry that are that are well understood. So you can take sophisticated models and and run a lot of data through them and then sort of create a feedback loop of prediction where there's some some human insight that that can be tested against those models. So even if you have something that has never been seen in recorded history, you have a little bit more of a sense of to what the true probabilities are. When you get into things where human beings are the primary drivers of what happens, for example, international politics, you really end up looking only at history as a guide. And so that's a very imperfect guide as we all know. And so investing would certainly fall into that framework as well. Uh, so he doesn't have any specific prescriptions that I'm aware of other than to just acknowledge the fact that you're working with very incomplete information, that you're not working with a strong guardrail on either side of the bound, and that um, it's it's very difficult to forecast things that have never happened before, particularly when they're subject to the whims of you know human behavior, because crazy things can happen and crazy things do happen all the time. So... Well, it's a fascinating subject uh, with tons of implications for investing. I don't know if uh, you you have any uh, last thoughts or either Chris or Phil on this topic. Um, you know, I'm kind of wondering, are there any typical mistakes that we as investors can avoid when it comes to forecasting uh, that are well documented or, or kind of uh, that Phil Tetlock talks about? Yeah, I don't know, Chris, I'd be curious for your thoughts, but I mean, one thing I just always try to avoid, I mean, I think the the bedrock of my investment process is just try to avoid mistakes because if I can be less stupid than the next person, that gives me a huge leg up. I don't have to be more brilliant and that is convenient because that's not going to be possible most of the time. So, uh, But I think if I can just avoid those really dumb mistakes where I would look back a few years from now and say, what was I thinking uh, which we all do, and they're not entirely avoidable, of course. But I think if you can just avoid those mistakes where you're clearly fooling yourself, I think that's just an enormously powerful investment framework. And so in doing that, the two things that I always try to do and that I recommend to anyone who asks is to keep a, a real-time record of your thinking so that you can evaluate your process and your your 
your results and say, you know, here's what I was thinking at the time and here's what really happened. And, and to do this process of a pre-mortem, to think in advance about not what can go right, because that's the obvious thing that your psychological tendencies will lead you towards. Oh, I'm going to make this investment. I'm going to get so wealthy from doing this. It's going to be so great. And instead, you should be thinking about it upside down. You should be inverting the problem and saying, why would this investment cost me money? Um, and, and doing that in this more structured parallel track framework that we just described, I think is extremely powerful. Yeah, I think gravitating toward those decisions where you know more than you think you know, because what I found is the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. E- easy outcomes, predictable outcomes. You know, the growth rate of a consumer staple business that's not likely to be disrupted by a new technology or by a competitor. You know, I think getting to where you can reasonably predict what a business looks like 5, 10, 15 years out. I have a high degree of conviction, for example, what I think Berkshire Hathaway is apt to look like five and 10 years from now, because I've got a pretty good sense of the, the, the genuine economic profitability of the business. You can, you know, make a case that capital allocation is going to change upon the departure of Mr. Buffett. But there's, there's a lot of predictable regulated return inside that entire franchise. And, you know, if you, if you, if you limit your decision makings to the things that are pretty damn predictable, and you're realistic about price, and you commit yourself to not overpaying, you know, I think the guys in the late 90s that owned a lot of the Go-Go's, um, you know, or the folks that, that, that suspended valuations, you know, in 1972 going into the nifty 50, but, you know, who had bought all the new tech, you know, I think, you know, if you'd, if you'd done the, the postmortem in retrospect, realized, you know, how much, you know, they may have gotten right on the business and, and the growth front, but how wrong they were on price. So there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk management that, that goes into avoiding the mistakes because God knows, I mean, the things that I find the most predictable, invariably, I'm wrong. I, I, I make way more mistakes in my two, three, five-year horizon thinking than uh, I think most people would acknowledge and, and accept. You're paying 20 times sales for something today that where everything has to go right. Be willing to do that post-mortem five and 10 and 15 and 20 years out to, to, to reconcile what you were thinking at the moment you pulled the trigger and bought the shares to what actually transpired and evolved. And John boils down to risk management to me. And uh, I, I've learned, and I, you know, you've listened to Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger talk about it for decades now. Try to try to set the high jump bar at a foot so you can step over it. And there's a lot to that. You know, try to try to own what you can understand that's predictably measured, measurable, and don't overpay for it. And you know, hope to get a reasonably good outcome out of that. And I, I don't know what more I can add to tr- try to keep it simple and and don't be too much of a super forecaster and try to be a better, you know, judge of uh, reality. Well, Disney is certainly, uh, I'd say, a great example of a business where we know they're going to be still a very, very relevant business uh, 10 and 15 and 20 years from now. Um, and, uh, I just find it uh, so great that, uh, you were actually able to engage them in a dialogue and, uh, uh, got your viewpoint across. I think that also actually speaks uh, to the kind of company it is. 
yeah, I hold them in, in the highest regard. But, you know, even with a Disney, you know, I tell you my base case for revenues is $80 billion. They're going to do, you know, three quarters of that this year. Uh, they're not going to make any money. You've got to make assessments and, 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 and judgments about what this thing looks like over a two- and five-year period of time. You don't know when the COVID is going to end, and you really don't know how the distribution of content is going to shake out. And so with a company like this, you have to judge, you know, who are the folks sitting in, in the management chair these days? Uh, how well has the business allocated capital retrospectively? Uh, and, and what are the big decisions they have to make? And be willing to, 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 to Phil's point, not get complacent with any of these things because disruption can come along from any corner and it can take out, you know, the most highly regarded of businesses. You know, if, if in 98, as a shareholder of Coca-Cola, you know, you just looked at the historical growth rate in servings of eight ounces globally and that growth curve, and you would have said, you know, paying 45 times earnings for this business is terrific. With no sense that there was going to be a change in health habits and, and a change for the desire of their primary brand. And so at some point, you've got you've to think kind of in the, in the near and intermediate term, where are the risks coming from? You can never take uh, even a Walt Disney, even a Berkshire Hathaway for granted because change happens. And in this current environment, change happens faster and faster. It's, it's bewildering to me how much more rapid the pace of change is than it was 20 and 30 years ago. Well, that's a great point. Uh, Phil, unless you have uh, anything, any last words to add, no, I would just say that being a better judge of reality is probably the best tagline I could think of for, you know, not only making good investment decisions, but just living in general. So just trying to judge things as they come and, and take things evenly and as rationally as possible, be a better judge of reality. I mean, that really says it, that says it well. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. It is what it is. <laughs> Well, guys, uh, thank you so much. This has been a great uh, discussion. We missed uh, Elliot this week, but we will have him back uh, with us next week. And uh, just given what's happening between uh, here and there, it could be a very interesting discussion next week. We'll see. Be safe out on the streets of Zurich, John. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I will try uh, my best. Likewise uh, to both of you. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.